Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Before we dig into today's passage, I kind of want to share with you where we're going to be going over the next month or so in the sermon series. So after today's sermon, we're going to spend one or two more days in second, or one, one or two more Sundays in Second Samuel. I'm not sure uh, quite how, quite what yet, but we'll be looking at chapter 12, uh, one or the next two Sundays. And then we will be having uh, uh, our Christmas Eve service uh, at 4 and 6 p.m. Like normal, we didn't have room to fit it in the bulletin today, but that will be coming up. And then Christmas Day is on the Lord's Day. It's on the Sabbath day. And so we will be having church like normal. Um, I know there are rumors out there that Christmas is about family, uh, but it's actually about something much better than family. It's about Jesus. And we get to come together as a family of God and celebrate Jesus uh, on the Lord's Day on Christmas. What a wonderful day to spend our Christmas day. So I encourage you to plan on coming uh, to one of those services. Also, uh, after that, we're going to be going into the new year, and we'll be switching over to the New Testament, one of the epistles or letters in the New Testament. I'm not quite sure which one, but one of them that starts with the letter T. So you can uh, think about it and guess and see if you're right come, come the spring. But we're excited about diving into the, the New Testament a little bit in the, the spring. Uh, but right now, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And so if you would, please open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you are in the Red Bible, it is page 262 in the Red Bible. Uh, as you can tell by the title of today's sermon, uh, it is not the most Christmassy or Adventy sermon. Uh, nonetheless, God's word is always timely, and it is timeless, and it will show us our desperate need for Christmas to come. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. Uh, if you've been with us this semester, as we have looked at the life of David, you know that David has lived a very honorable life. Uh, he has not been perfect, but he has really won over our hearts. Uh, when everyone else was afraid to fight Goliath, David, this small little guy, trusted in the Lord and defeated Goliath and slayed him. Uh, when David was running for his life from King Saul, he uh, refused to kill the Lord's anointed, and he waited on the Lord. And then he waited on the Lord for several decades until the Lord had made him king over all of Israel. And after becoming king, David extended the kingdom of God over the entire promised land, where he ruled righteously and judiciously with equity and he showed charity towards people like Mephibosheth and generosity to the nations around him. And so David has really lived an excellent and wonderful life and received a lot of blessing for himself and for the kingdom of Israel because of his faithfulness. All is going well until we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, what we find out is that because of the choices that David makes, everything seems to fall apart. 
David and his family and Israel suffered tremendous misery for generations to come. And so we're going to start that story here, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 5. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messenger and took messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this man who is described as a a man after your own heart, and as we see the things he does in this chapter, it is confusing. Uh, It is infuriating. Um, And so God, pray that you would help us to, to see what you would have us to understand from this chapter. Lord, may your word speak into our hearts and to our lives. May it speak healing, but also may it speak warning. Uh, that we may not travel down the same path David does that leads to the devastating consequences that he experiences. And so God, pray that you would work through your Holy Spirit, not only today as we read this passage, but to remind us of this passage in the days and the weeks to come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Life is short, have an affair. That is the tagline from an infamous website called Ashley Madison. It's an alluring tagline that has welcomed hundreds of thousands of customers. According to recent data from General Social Survey, 20% of men and 13% of women have committed adultery. Surprisingly to me, the rate of adultery actually increases as people get older and are further along in their marriage. The highest percentage uh, of people who have adultery are, have adultery 20 to 30 years after they have been married, and it is in their mid-50s. A 2014 survey from that Ashley Madison website reported that 23% of their clients identify as Protestants. 23% identify as Catholics, which means 46% of these people who go onto this website and become members of this website to have an adulterous relationship would consider themselves Christians. As you may know, famously, there was a data breach of this Ashley Madison website in 2015. And it was proposed that at the data breach, when the names were released, that 400 pastors would be resigning from their pulpit that Sunday. I could list some of the preachers by name, but there is no need to do that. You may know who they are. You shall not commit adultery. It sounds so easy, doesn't it? 
just don't commit adultery. But as we will see in today's passage, and as I think our lives reflect, it is not that easy. The percentages of people and Christians show us that, that it's much harder to be obedient to God's word than it might seem at face value. Now, if you are here today and you have not committed adultery before you cast the first stone, let me remind you what Jesus has said. Jesus has said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, giving this saying of Jesus that adultery is not just a physical action, but it's something that we do within our heart. I think the percentage now goes through the roof. Church, today's passage is warning us to avoid adultery, physical or in our hearts or in our minds at all costs. Because the consequence of adultery, as we will see, are far more devastating than what we could possibly anticipate. Now, if this is not scary enough, uh, it might also frighten you to know that I have six main points in this sermon and four subpoints in this sermon, uh, but I will seek to go speedily, and I did just barely come in under my word count quota, so we should be okay. But we're going to start with the cause of adultery. Uh, adultery may happen on a single night or at a single event, but it never happens overnight. Adultery is a culmination of sinful choices in a person's life. As we look back at the life of David, who is described again as a man after God's own heart, there is so much to rejoice in that we have talked about, but there is always this one nagging aspect of David's life. It seems that David took whatever woman he wanted, whenever he wanted to take her. Up to this point, David had married six to seven women and had at least 10 concubines, which were sexual partners of secondary status. David, who had conquered the entire promised land, had been conquered by his own lusts and sexual perversions. And while David, again, is called a man after God's own heart, the reality is he was often mastered, mastered by his own perversion, his own sexuality. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 15 that, that it is out of the heart that comes evil thoughts, like adultery and sexual immorality. And so it doesn't come out in the world, it comes from our own hearts. And so the cause of adultery fundamentally is our depraved hearts. But what do we see in this passage? We can't see David's heart, but what we can see are his actions. And what we see here is one of the causes that led to his adultery, the first one that we see is idling. Look at verse one with me. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David, but David remained at Jerusalem. In ancient times, armies would actually take a break from war in the wintertime. It seems like a smart thing to do. And then they would re-engage in the spring. And one of the roles of the king was to lead his people into battle. But David decided to take this one off. He decided not to pursue the, the will of God on his life. He decided to stay at home, to be retired, to take life easy, to focus more on himself and self-care. Maybe you've heard of the saying that comes loosely from Proverbs 16, but it says, idle hands are the devil's workshop. 
This is not saying that we should not have rhythms of rest. God actually institutes rhythms of rest with the the Lord's day, the Sabbath day, a day of rest and refreshment. And so we should have rhythms of rest. But with that said, God calls us into a continuous battle. The battle that is daily to extend the kingdom of his glorious kingdom in our world, in our families, in our marriages, and in our hearts. And this is a fight. This is why Jesus says to us, seek first, seek first the kingdom of God. When we simply seek the kingdom of self like David is doing here, we open ourselves up to being more vulnerable to self-absorption, sin, and self-pleasure. Another way to think about it for you theology geeks is that the sin of commission, which is doing what we should not do, starts with the sin of omission, which is not doing what God has called us to do. You know, I found this on mission trips. When we go on mission trips, the the kids are so happy and, and joyful and they're struggling with sin less because they are on mission for God. What if we viewed all of life as a mission trip? What if we viewed every day as a, as a day to extend the kingdom of Christ in the world and in our own soul. It takes intentionality and surrender, accountability, prayer, and the power of God to swim upstream, to live, not idolized for ourselves, but living for the kingdom of God. And so that's the, the first thing. David, David's affair arises uh, after, not after pursuing an affair, but by pursuing nothing at all, by idling by not seeking first the kingdom of God. The second cause of adultery that we see here in this passage is David's fixating. Look at verse two with me. It says, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Unlike in our culture, in that culture, the roof was kind of a balcony where people would go and enjoy the nice breeze and they would see the sunset. And David was walking on his roof, nothing wrong with that, and he sees a woman bathing, nothing wrong with that as well. He couldn't help but to see it. This woman was probably in a private courtyard of her house bathing. That would be customary at the time. And because David's roof was higher than everyone else's roof in the city, David could see down into this courtyard. And it says that David saw this woman. Now, in the Hebrew, the word for saw is, uh, is much more than a glance. It is, to, it is to observe, to gaze, to stare David did not see Bathsheba and bounce his eyes away. David fixated on this woman. Now, in our world, there are not uh, outdoor bathtubs. I don't think they are, but, but there's still plenty of opportunities for us to fixate on someone that is beautiful. It could be someone across the room. It could be someone at the gym or at the pool or at the beach. It's, it's easy to fixate pe- on people, not only with our eyes, but with our imaginations, We can fixate on people on our TV or on movies or on the internet. It wasn't a sin for David to see this woman. He couldn't help it. But it was for him to fixate on this woman. And so the cause of adultery starts with our hearts always. But when we go on idle, when we quit seeking the kingdom of God, we open ourselves up, we become vulnerable, and then David fixates his his mind and his eyes and his fantasies on this woman. 
Next, we get to the course of adultery, which is taking adultery uh, to the next level, which is taking it from our heart and from our minds and putting it into action. And we see the first step of action that David does is he inquires about this woman Bathsheba. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David's thoughts take action. Again, instead of bouncing his eyes away and his heart away from this woman, David, David takes the next step to inquire about this woman. You know, with the creation of the internet, inquiring about someone is easier and quicker than ever before. All you have to do is type their name into a, a Google uh, search engine or into social media, and you can find out a lot about someone. You can find out a lot about a high school crush or about someone that you think is attractive or someone that you see on TV. And then, of course, many times it escalates from there into pornography, there's an article that was published a year ago, and it was called The Porn Pandemic. And it shares that on an annual basis, the pornography industry generates more revenue than NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. That doesn't happen without any customers. Every month, more people view internet pornography than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. 93% of boys, 63% of girls are exposed to pornography before the age of 18. The average age of first exposure, some say is 11, some say is 8. A recent survey shows that 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women are addicted to pornography. Do you think we need to hear this chapter? Here's the thing. Many people think pornography does not hurt anyone that it's almost a rite of passage of some sorts. But even secular counselors are now seeing how devastating it is to people, to families. It enslaves both those who participate in it and those who consume it. It fosters human trafficking and it destroys marriages and families. Taking it one step forward, there are websites and apps that you just have to swipe one way or the other to set up a hookup with someone. It's, it's all around us. It is very easy to inquire of others. Back to verse 3. It says, And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? I don't know who it is that is saying this to David, but this is a bold and godly person. David says, who is that woman? And the guy doesn't simply say, oh, that's Bathsheba. He says, that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliab. She is the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. You know, Eliab, the guy who was a courageous fighter for you, whose dad was one of your advisors. It's his daughter and that guy's granddaughter. Not to mention, it is the wife of Uriah who is on the front lines of the battle as we speak, fighting on your behalf. Do you not know who this woman is? It is a warning. David, stay away. But David is fixated on this woman. He is determined to continue with his lusts and satisfy them in perverse ways. And so the inquiring leads to taking, verse four. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Bathsheba was bathing 
because she was being faithful to the Lord. She was bathing because she was obeying the Bible. She was bathing because after a time of menstruation, women were supposed to wash themselves to become ceremonially clean. But David did not care about any of this. The text emphasizes David's quick and commanding actions. It's really focused on David. David sent. David took. David lay with Uriah. David sent. David took. David lay with Uriah's wife. Excuse me, that's what I'm saying. The word used here for take is the same that, that is used earlier in 2 Samuel when David took spoils from, from other nations. And so David takes this woman as if she is property to be conquered. Now there may be a question whether or not Bathsheba was a willing participant in this for several reasons as I've studied this text. I don't think Bathsheba was a willing participant. I'm not sure she said stop, but when your king who is also a military commander who has killed thousands of people, says, come, lay with me, there is a level of intimidation that overshadows, that forces her into something that she does not want to do. But whether Bathsheba was a willing participation or not, David was not only taking this woman from her house, David was taking this woman from her husband. He was taking this woman from her father and her grandfather. He was taking this woman's dignity and this woman's humanity, also that David could take her to himself for his own selfish pleasure. You know, this is true of, of adultery in our heart as well. If, if we look on things on the internet or on TV, pornography, it is supremely selfish. It's supremely selfish in that this person that we are looking at is someone's son or daughter. We're taking them from their husband or wife, present or future. We're taking them from their family. We're taking their identity. We are taking their humanity. And so as we look at this passage, we see that adultery does not start with adultery. It starts with idling on God's calling to seek first his kingdom. And then fixating on someone who does not belong to us, who are we not married to, inquiring about someone for evil ends, and then taking them either physically or in our imagination. And that leads us to the consequences of adultery. And there are always consequences to adultery, no matter what form of adultery it might be. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. This is a very important parenthesis. Um, I don't have the time to explain to you how the female body works, nor do I have any desire to do that at all. But because Bathsheba had just got done with her menstrual cycle, it means that she was not pregnant, and her husband was away at war. Continues, says, then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David. And these are the only words she says in the entire chapter. I am pregnant. This announcement would have been devastating for David, devastating for Bathsheba. In, in the nation of Israel, adultery was a capital offense that was punishable by death. But even worse than that would be the shame of being found out of being an adulterer. You can imagine how heavy the consequences must have felt upon them. Rumors had probably circulated that they had a thing going on. But now the pregnancy proves that it is true. You know, when we are tempted by sexual sin or sin in general, Satan whispers into our ear, no one will ever find out. This will be our little secret and no one will get hurt. But the reality is sin 
has consequences always. And the more severe the sin, especially sexual sin, the greater the consequences are. I have an acquaintance in, in Green Bay, uh, doesn't attend our church, um, but he had a lovely family, a wife, and a couple of kids, and he was very successful in his business. Things at home were not going well between him and his wife. They had not had intimacy in a really long time. And so he justified to himself that he needed to find intimacy someplace else. And so he found intimacy with a woman at his workplace. And as this was going on, he shared this with his friend. And his friend actually encouraged it and endorsed it and said, yeah, if you can find your physical needs and your physical pleasures in this woman, it takes pressure off your relationship with your wife. It was a horrible word of advice. Eventually, it got found out, as it always does, and the wife chose to divorce him, and it ripped their household in shreds. And as I met with him after all of this happened, he, he's just sitting there going, if, I wish I could do it all over again. This is, I would stay celibate my entire life if I knew this is how bad it would be. You see, sin, sexual sin, always has consequences. David is a prime example of this. Again, if you know the story of David, up to this point, there is blessing and victory and, and glory, but from chapter 11 on, there is devastation and destruction. His, his family is torn in two. They war against one another. The kingdom is torn apart, all because of this one night with Bathsheba. And talking about sexual sin, author Steve Gallagher puts it this way, he says this, he says, sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and cost you more than you can ever pay. <clears throat> Sexual sin always has consequences. <clears throat> As John Owen famously said, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. <clears throat> Idleness is not an option. Now, David, at some level, knew that this was wrong, and so he starts to cover it up. Verse 6 and 7. <coughs> Excuse me. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Could you imagine how awkward of a conversation this might have been? David is looking into the eyeballs of the man whose wife he just slept with, the man whose wife he just impregnated, and David is making small talk. How's it going on the battle line out there? How are guys doing? How's morale? Uh, he was probably doing this to make Uriah think this was why he had called Uriah home. But then we find the true reason for David calling Uriah home in verse 8. It says, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Wink, wink, nod, nod. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. David is sending Uriah home to go sleep with his wife Bathsheba so that when she has a child, everyone will assume or at least wonder if it is Uriah's baby and not David's. It seems like a foolproof plan, but what David does not count on is the godliness of Uriah. What David did not count on was a man more devoted to the Lord and to the people of God than to his own sexual fulfillments. Look at verse 9 through verse 11 with me. It says, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. 
When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. This passage gives us a stark contrast between King David and Uriah, the convert who used to be a Hittite. David is unfaithful and his adultery with Bathsheba, but Uriah is supremely faithful to his people and to his king and to his God, and he will not go home to his wife. And so plan A does not work for David, so David goes on to plan B. Look at verse 12 and 13 with me. It says, And David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made, he made him drunk. David got Uriah drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Plan A did not work because Uriah was faithful. Plan B did not work because Uriah was faithful. And so now, plan C. David does something that is very disturbing. David will exploit Uriah's faithfulness to cover up his own adultery. Verse 14 and 15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. I don't know if it gets much more wicked than this. David hands faithful Uriah his own death sentence, depending on Uriah's faithfulness, not open the letter to get it to Joab, delivering his own, his own diploma of execution. Now make no mistake, David could have come clean at this point in time to Uriah. He could have confessed his sin, but instead he decided to cover it up more and more. It just gets darker and darker and worse and worse. And it even leads to conspiracy to commit murder. You know, this teaches us something very important. And and we see this along this way is that there's always an opportunity to come clean. There's always an opportunity to repent. There's always an opportunity to exit the ramp of this highway that you're headed down. But if you continue down, it will only become more devastating. The consequences will only become more painful and more detrimental. You see, you can clear your web history or delete your text messages or or you can take off your phone tracker or have a secret stash of cash. You can try to hide your sin. You can try not to confess your sin, but it only spirals downward and gets worse and worse and worse into depravity. And you see, see, Satan won't tell you this, but God does. The cover-up of sin never makes things better. It only makes things worse in so many ways. And that leads us to our next point, which is the collateral damage of adultery. It's actually also the collateral damage of not repenting, the collateral damage of, of, of trying to cover up sin. Look at verse 16 
and 17 with me. It says, And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. The conspiracy to commit murder was successful. The conspiracy to commit murder ended in the murder of not only Uriah, but several of the servants of Israel. You can see how this unrepentant sin of David, this cover-up of David, is causing waves of collateral damage as men are dying on the battlefield. Wives are left without a husband. Children are left without a dad. Verse 18 through 21. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. You see, Joab knew that he was making a bonehead decision to send his troops up against the city wall. He knew that they would be vulnerable. He knew that it would be a suicide mission for the soldiers that went up there. He knew that the king would say, what were you thinking? He anticipated the king's frustration. So he said, after you tell the king that all of this happened, make sure you include in there that Uriah has died. Verse 22 through 25. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. David is basically saying, tell my commander Joab that this is no big deal. That the lives of these men were no big deal. That, that men are going to die in battle. David is trivializing the soldiers that have died. The lives of men who were lost because of David's sexual exploits and efforts to cover it up. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. You see here, Bathsheba loved her husband Uriah. Uriah was a godly man. And for this reason and many reasons, I do not think Bathsheba was a willing participant in the king's adulterous affair. And so now she is not only grieving the loss of her husband, who was a valiant and faithful man, but now she is vulnerable and dependent on her abuser, David, to take care of her. Verse 27, And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, his <clears throat> eighth wife, <clears throat> and bore him a son. And now the summary statement for 2 Samuel 11. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see, the collateral damage of David's adultery and cover-up was not only damaging to 
horizontal relationships, hundreds of horizontal relationships, but it was also devastating to his vertical relationship with God. A, a few years ago, I was meeting with a man, and it, I didn't know the man very well, and <clears throat> he wanted to meet with me because he was struggling with a lot of depression and anxiety. Uh, he had trouble believing that God loved him. Uh, as he walked around, you could see he was just a shell of a human being. He was miserable. He looked like a dead man walking. Well, one day, many months later, uh, he confessed to me that he had committed adultery. And my immediate response to him was, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. And the reason why I was not surprised is because while sin is pleasurable in the moment, it always makes us miserable in the end. Sin is pleasurable in the moment, but it always makes us miserable. And then I could see the misery all over this man's face, all over this man's walk, all over this man's life. And if we seek to cover up our sin and continue our sin, not only does it wreck our horizontal relationships, but it devastates our vertical relationship and our intimacy with God. And so the first thing I said to my friend was, I'm not surprised. The second thing I said to him was, how can I help? And if I remember the moment correctly, he simply started crying because he thought that he was beyond help. He thought there was no help for him. He thought that he was doomed to a life of devastation. You know, maybe you are here today and this sermon weighs heavy on you. And you think you are beyond the help of God, the grace of God, the love of God. But what we find here is that even though, even though we are the cause of our adultery, that God by his grace has provided a cure for our adultery. See, in today's passage, the depths of David's depravity is on full display. In the course of this chapter, David has broken most of the Ten Commandments. He worships the God of sexuality. He covets his neighbor's wife. He steals his neighbor's wife. He commits adultery. He bears false testimony to cover up his adultery. And he even murders. And I'm sure all of this is very dishonoring to his father and mother. He breaks almost all of the Ten Commandments in one chapter. If David was still alive today, David would not only be disqualified from vocational ministry, he would probably be removed from political office. David would be tried, he would be found guilty, and he would be put in prison if he would not be put to death for the sin of murder. You know, I'm guessing none of you have sinned to the extent of David. But if you have, there is a cure for you. And the cure for you is the same that is the cure for David. And I am tempted to simply say, come back next week because we're going to get to the cure in more depth then, but I don't want to leave you hanging. See, after David recognizes the depth of his sin, he repents and he writes a song of repentance. It's called Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, it says, a Psalm of David, after he had gone into Bathsheba, and he sings this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Can you guess what the Hebrew word is there? Chesed. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Notice David does not make any excuses for his sin. He doesn't blame anybody else. He owns his sin. 
And he cries out for mercy. He cries out for grace because of the steadfast love of God. Not because of his goodness. Not because of his record of things he had done. He doesn't say, you know, I'm a really good man except for this one part. He says, no, I am broken. I am sinful. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Make me clean. And how could David be made clean? He says, wash me. How could David be washed and be made whiter than snow? What is he washed with? It's not OxyClean. OxyClean is not going to clean up his mess. He has to be washed in the blood. The blood of the descendant of David and Bathsheba. The blood of the true and faithful king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who Hebrew force tells us, who in every respect, even sexually, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because he was without sin, Jesus could take on David's sin and my sin and your sin and take the punishment for our sin. Jesus died an adulterer's death upon the cross on our behalf so that we can be washed by the blood of Jesus and made whiter than snow. This is good news. For whoever repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus for their salvation, even, even for you. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, and it shows just the ramifications and the trueness that we can be washed of our sin. It says, or do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And such were some of you, past tense, such were some of you, but you were washed, washed in the blood of Jesus. You were sanctified. You were made holy despite your adultery. You were justified, declared righteous as if you had never sinned in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. I love what our Westminster Confession of Faith says about repentance and sin. It says, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Friends, if you truly repent of your sins and turn to Jesus Christ, I cannot promise that your horizontal relationships will be healed. But what I can promise is that the most important relationship, your vertical relationship with God, will be restored. Reader's Digest article, let me end here. I know I'm probably a little long. Reader's Digest uh, has... Uh, share stories. If you've heard of Reader's Digest, I don't, it's probably obsolete now, probably not. Uh, but <clears throat> I loved reading Reader's Digest as a kid and all the stories in there. But, but there's one story of this fall where there's this ice storm and the ice storm takes out a bridge and the bridge collapses. And cars continue to travel towards this bridge and, and go down into the icy river. <clears throat> and, uh, and one of the guys actually makes it out of the ice water, comes back up on the highway, and he's on the side of the highway trying to flag people down, telling them to stop. He's warning them, but they just keep cruising by him. Some of them are mocking him as they go by, and they're just driving right into the river, one by one by one. Finally, he gets out into the middle of the road. He starts flapping his jacket around, stopping cars. They think he's crazy. They're yelling at him, but he says, stop, stop. The bridge is out up ahead. He stands there to warn them. 2 Samuel chapter 11 stands to warn us that destruction is ahead if we continue down the path that we are going. As I read this chapter, the image that kept coming to mind is David is speeding down this highway 100 miles an hour going straight towards the sun. 
And he has all of these exits where he can get off all along the way. Even from the very beginning, when he first sees Bathsheba, he could have bounced his eyes and walked away. When the guy comes and he says, this is Uriah's wife, he can say, okay, I'm exiting, I'm repenting, I'm moving away from this. But David continued down the path to his own destruction. Today is a warning for us, and it's a call to repentance. And and, and when we repent, not only do we say, God, I'm so sorry for my sin, but we actually turn away from our sin and we pledge to seek God faithfully and wholeheartedly. And we are not called to do that on our own. Matter of fact, Satan would like you to be convicted and say, I'm going to go change this on my own. God calls us to do this in community. And so I'd encourage you to share with your community group or with a friend, with a pastor, with an elder, with a youth group leader, with a parent, if this resonates with you. If you say, I need help with my sexual sin in my life. If if any of those ways are are too intimidating for you, you can go on our website, the very bottom, there's a a link to our care groups. And and if you click on that, you'll see there's a link that you can email Pastor Spencer, who's pastor of counseling. It will be completely confidential. But we have care groups for, for women who are wanting to seek purity, for men who are wanting to seek purity, for people who wrestle with unwanted same-sex attraction and want to seek purity. We have groups to support all of those folks. And so if this is you, encourage you, encourage you to go log on and to do that and to reach out to someone to help you pursue purity in your life. Final story. As I was uh, at a church planting conference several years ago, early on in the life of Jake as well, I remember we went to Naperville, Wisconsin, which is this big church, and the pastor there, his name is Chris Hodge. And Chris uh, planted a church, and I don't know if it worked out, but he ended up at this mega church. And he said, you know, when when I planted a church, I had these goals of wanting to grow into this huge church and plant churches and, and, you know, really change the city for the the good of of the gospel. Those were my goals. He says, but as I have grown in my age, I really only have two goals in life. My two goals in life is that by the end of my life that I would still love Jesus and I would still love my wife. He said, plenty of pastors have made lots of goals and failed in those two areas and has devastated their life. I love those goals. Those are now my goals, to love Jesus and to love my wife. Whether you are a pastor or not, whether you have committed adultery or not, whether you are married or not, may these be your goals, to love Jesus and to love your spouse. If you're single, that might be the spouse to come, or it could be Jesus, who is your eternal spouse. Let us avoid adultery because all of the pain and all of the misery and let us cling to Jesus who is our great treasure and our great groom. Let's pray. Lord God, this is, (laughs) needless to say, a very heavy chapter and yet you give it to us by your grace. You give it to us to help us to avoid continuing into paths of misery Lord God, I pray for those here today who are struggling with addictions, who are headed down paths of sexual sin. God, I pray that they would reach out for help, that they would not just simply say, okay, I'm going to stop it on my own power, but they would connect with your church in whatever way, shape, or form to gather brothers and sisters around them that can lift them up, that can encourage them in the gospel, that can hold them accountable, that can point them to everlasting life. So God, pray that you would work in us, God. I, I, I think we will not see the fruit of this sermon, but we will see in heaven how you have used your word today to keep us from doing things that are devastating to us, to our families, 
into our relationship with you. And so, God, we thank you in advance and pray that you work mightily by your grace through your Holy Spirit in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.